So today we're sitting down to talk about uh, all things menopause, perimenopause, uh, surgical menopause, and um, what do our you know, patients and people out there need to know about this. So this is going to be a fun one. This will be a good one, and it is a topic that will apply to um, about half of everybody. Because at some point, menopause is inevitable. Many people ask us how we got into this and why do we concentrate on hormones to some degree, at least relative to other healthcare providers. And it's because when you're trying to provide the best care for your patients, you want things that are clinically significant, and you also want to be really adept. You want to have a, sol a solid evidence-based practice on pathologies that are common. And hormone pathology is exceptionally common. There is a very high demand for these issues, not just menopause, but also fertility, PCOS, hypogonadism, and there is not a huge supply to meet that demand. So when you think about menopause, it is the, uh, at, at its tissue level, it is when the ovaries cease to function. This usually happens in the mid 50s, but it can also happen very early in life. That's called POI, or premature ovarian insufficiency, also known as early menopause. And it can also happen later there's a lot of studies, but most of the promising ones are in mice. So I don't know if I would consider them super promising, but there are certainly interesting studies on how to delay menopause. If you look at the last thousands of years of human existence, perhaps one of the reasons why menopause occurs is because the life expectancy is just um, to a point where previously a lot of women would die of something and men would die of something too before the average age of menopause in the mid-50s. So there wasn't a selection for a, um, a longer time of fertility. Yeah, and if you look at um, like menopause happening around 50, what do the pregnancy outcomes look like that happen at you know 45 or 50 years old and you just have higher rates of complications? Mm -hmm. I mean, just being pregnant alone is a risk to your health. Yep. Uh, a lot of people think of it as you know something that is normal, and, and it is normal, um, but it's not a normal state of health. There are certainly increased risks there. So maybe that's something that from an evolutionary standpoint, if you're going to have high rates of complications, then it wouldn't necessarily be advantageous to maintain fertility into your 60s, 70s, and so forth, mm -hmm. uh, let alone the fact that we weren't living that long. And this doesn't just apply to women and men, too. You see, you know, the older the father is, then the more likely there is to be some sort of issue there, just mm -hmm. because there's going to be some changes in sperm quality and so forth just due to aging processes. Yeah. A good rule of thumb is if you um, would potentially desire fertility after the age of 40, then you would want to freeze your eggs. And you would want to do that before, certainly before the age of 35, if you could before the age of 30. Um, I'm not necessarily, you know, if you look at the incidence of congenital defects, there is an exponential increase as you age, but you don't necessarily have to, um, like theoretically, perhaps um, freezing in you know, the early to mid 20s would be reasonable, but um, there's likely not going to be a huge clinically significant benefit. And also as time goes on, the technology is improving more and more for um, diagnosing pathologies before implantation. Right, and 
yeah, I don't know that people need to, you know, worry themselves with, oh, I have to defreeze by this date. You know, if you look at people in 20s and 30s, a lot of times you may not be in the, the financial place to do so, but you are in your 40s. So I, I think earlier the better if that is the intended route, but certainly not something to, to stay up uh, or lose sleep over. Yeah. Um, as far as getting to menopause, so a number of women have surgical menopause or premature ovarian insufficiency and these things come with some pretty significant symptoms and you know i've even heard women talk about you know well yeah they, they warned me about this whenever they took my just my uterus out so assuming that she still has ovaries that there might be some you know brain fog or you know xyz that occurs some vasomotor symptoms mm -hmm. even though you still have the ovaries there uh, those ovaries could potentially be damaged during the surgical procedure. They're just not producing hormones at the same capacity. So in those cases, um, it's a bit of a balance. You have to take a look at the hormones themselves and see, is there actually an issue with the production of, you know, testosterone, estradiol, progesterone, um, or is this related to something else? Because a lot of times you'll see like a partial deficit. You know, there's still some estrogen being produced, but it's in very low quantities and probably not going to be useful over time in holding on to bones and things of that nature. Yeah, you would want to see if the objective data matches with these subjective symptoms and how someone's feeling. If you're, and it doesn't really matter if it's surgical menopause, especially if it's complete and they remove the ovaries as well. It's obviously one case where you would certainly consider uh, bioidentical hormone replacement, or if it's premature insufficiency or premature um, complete ovarian failure. You want to balance the risks of many different pathologies, but one big one that is uh, you know, likely to kill both a lot of men and women is cardiovascular disease. Estrogen has, has many different potential mechanisms where it's protective, but its action on Various lipid parameters is one of the main ones. Yeah, if you look at, on average, you know, a postmenopausal woman who begins hormone replacement therapy, you'll see improvements in the lipid profile and also improvements in blood pressure. Probably one of the reasons that estradiol seems to be protective against cardiovascular events. Mm -hmm. So the earlier the better, and there's certainly a window when uh, starting estrogen soon after. Uh, failure and sufficiency of ovarian estrogen production is very important. Some individuals do produce a good amount of estrogen and also testosterone as a byproduct of adrenal function via the DHEA pathway, but that is highly variable. There's also something known as adrenopause, which is where your adrenals slowly stop working. It's more similar to andropause, where there is a slow decrease over time and actually the reference ranges change as well for DHEA and DHEA sulfate. And that's a little bit different than menopause where there is a precipitous decrease where it is almost, uh, where it is very, very frequently symptomatic. However, having um, high normal or optimal uh, adrenal hormone production may be somewhat protective for severe symptoms. Yeah, it's sort of your body's backup or reservoir, and you and I have both seen the, the levels of natural DHEA production is widely variable. You have some yeah. people who are, you know, not even necessarily having adrenal hyperplasia, but have a very robust production, you know, maybe uh, a 600 on the, the scale, and 
DHEA is actually the most abundant sex hormone, if yep. you will, in the body. And then if you look at you know 65-year-old men, that reference range may only go up to 250, 300, depending on the lab you're looking at. Mm -hmm. DHEA is the pawn on the chessboard of hormones, and you have quite a few of them. And given enough time, some of them do get to the edge of the chessboard, and you can you can rook them or queen them or whatnot. So they can convert to both testosterone and estrogen, but it's not very common for that to happen. But it does occur, and the more it occurs, it could be beneficial. When you study DHEA, several countries have prescription medications where uh, in the United States, DHEA is over the counter, and it can also be prescribed. But there are several brand name DHEAs as well, which might be a good option because there's um, less variation with DHEA. So if it's able to be prescribed if you need it, then it could be reasonable. There's been a lot of studies on both the supplements and the medications, and if you give it to everyone across the board, it is difficult to prove a statistically significant effect and probably a clinically significant effect. So that just reinforces the idea that selecting individuals that have particularly low DHEA or symptoms of that, they could be better candidates, where the average person probably has no benefit. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. From it at all. Yeah, and I think that's pretty clear in the literature. If you look at, you know, DHEA and some of these weight loss studies, they don't check levels, you know, before they just put people on typically a pretty robust dose of DHEA, mm -hmm. sometimes 50 or 100 milligrams, yep. and you see mild weight loss. So where you're starting from is gonna determine how effective that is. Same thing with your energy levels, right? So chronic fatigue syndrome, you tend to see lower levels of DHEA there, and you see some benefit, not necessarily a, a cure, a complete 100% recovery to normal with DHEA supplementation, but you do see some benefit there not in even 100% of trial participants, mm -hmm. but just in terms of averages. So uh, I think the, the point of this is we want to look at the you know, hormone baseline, the clinical picture, and then draw from that the conclusion of what the treatment plan should look like in conjunction with what the patient's specific concerns are. Definitely. There's a lot more to um, assessing the severity, well, not the severity menopause, assessing the risk-benefit ratio of various interventions in perimenopause and after menopause than just an estrogen and progesterone level. Testosterone is another important biomarker to look at. Yeah, and, and testosterone has probably been neglected um, or at least not looked at as heavily as estrogen and progesterones and progestins. Um, but as far as menopause, I guess we can briefly run through what some of those symptoms are, what things happen immediately, and then what are some things that we see over time mm -hmm. in terms of negative health consequences or negative quality of life symptoms. There's a few main groups of symptoms that occur during menopause. One of the main ones is known as vasomotor symptoms of menopause. So that's like hot flashes or sleep difficulty. And then you have uh, what's called genitourinary syndrome of menopause. And that used to be called uh, you know, vaginal atrophy, and now we call it genitourinary syndrome. 
and that encompasses uh, higher risk of incontinence or uh, atrophic changes, dryness, um, changes in libido. And there is some overlap between these two constellation of symptoms, but both estrogen and progesterone can play a role in both. But you do not necessarily need both estrogen and progesterone because you're having those symptoms. If they're mild, there is natural things that you can do, and there's also non-bioidentical medications, a whole host of them, that have also been designed to address these symptoms. Yeah, so let's start with the, the hot flashes because this is probably one of the more common things that at least I hear from patients that are in perimenopause or menopause. So they have these hot flashes and night sweats come out of nowhere. They're wearing sandals in the wintertime because yeah. the temperature regulation is off. Do we know exactly what is driving this, this change in temperature regulation? If you treat these individuals with estrogen, then many times they improve, even without progesterone. Progesterone can be helpful to address the sleep symptoms that are related to the vasomotor symptoms, but the rest of them it appears mostly related to estrogen. And it appears more to do with the drop in estrogen, so perhaps the estrogen receptor sensitivity, whereas um, it's not necessarily the absolute level, but the drop. So an individual that might drop very slowly with estrogen levels, specifically estradiol, which is the strongest estrogen, might have less symptoms than an individual that drops precipitously. Yeah, the, the acute drop and kind of falling off a cliff is how it's sometimes described with the change in the estradiol levels it has a lot to do with it. And even if you look at the newest literature on this, they'll, they'll say that the mechanism is not fully understood. There does appear to be a narrowed thermoregulatory zone. So maybe you had this much of a gap before you would feel hot and have diaphoresis or you would be cold and shivering and now that's a much more narrow window. Mm -hmm. And it, it's sort of like, I think of walking, maybe you're walking a balance beam before, now you're on a tightrope. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to fall off of one side of your hypothalamus and yep. you know, has to do with the levels of estrogen and um, some different neurotransmitters. So norepinephrine is implicated in this because you see higher levels of you know, norepinephrine in menopause whenever that estrogen level drops off. Mm -hmm. And then whenever you replace that, you see that sort of move back to a normalcy in that thermoregulatory zone. Maybe it's not 100% where it used to be, but it certainly yeah. expands. And if you think about the sleep issues, the norepinephrine part of that seems to also be contributing you know, just from a hypothetical or theoretical standpoint because you've lost your progesterone, so that's your brakes for your sympathetic nervous system, and now you're putting you know, fuel additive in the gas tank with norepinephrine driving more sympathetic nervous activity. Mm -hmm. So it's really a recipe for you know, increased blood pressure and poor sleep, which are two things that we very commonly see. Yeah, um, it, it's not a good combination. The hypothalamus is particularly important for temperature regulation. There's certain nuclei in the hypothalamus that can regulate it. One other neurotransmitter that can uh, also, like, is very strongly correlated with thermoregulation is serotonin. And serotonin can be related with estrogen levels as well. So there's multiple different potential uh, causatory vectors. And what we do know is that if we replace it or if we um, blunt that falling off a cliff of the estrogen, then there's significantly less symptoms. Many women over time, and this is classically how hormone replacement is done in general as well, 
if you very slowly decrease the dose, if there's a recurrence in vasomotor symptoms, you can keep the dose at the same level. And then if the vasomotor symptoms are under control with a slightly lower dose, you can decrease very slowly over a period of a decade or even two decades or three decades and slowly wean down and not have a recurrence of those symptoms at all. Yeah, and it's interesting if you look at the duration of symptoms, you know, after a certain point, and I guess sort of the old school thinking was, yeah, you go through menopause, you have these symptoms, and then five to 15 years later, they go away. So it's something that perhaps the body is adjusting to over an extended amount of time, but uh, you can certainly reduce those symptoms, and you don't need a lot of estradiol to do that. Um, probably you need less estradiol even to reduce those symptoms than you do to improve you know, bone density or some of the other metrics that we're looking at. Also of note, if an individual is also on testosterone replacement, then they need even less estradiol because they will get peripheral estradiol from that testosterone conversion. Yeah, something important to consider if you're looking at um, you know, the different hormones and peripheral conversion and even DHEA converts peripherally to estradiol. Mm -hmm. yep. We don't know a lot about the human data there, but we know that it, it can cause estrogenic symptoms and we know it can convert peripherally you know, because you see, uh, for example, a spike in acne with DHEA yep. sometimes. Whereas the serum hormones really haven't changed that much, but clearly something has changed with the expression of hormones in the skin mm -hmm. that's causing that outbreak. Yeah, and sometimes it has to do with the actual conversion of hormones intracellularly inside the cell. I believe Dr. Fernand Labri, L-A-B-R-I-E, uh, he recently passed away. He was affiliated with an institution in Canada, and he did a lot of work. I believe he's attributed as the one. Um, he did a lot of work with DHEA. I believe one of his um, research studies showed that DHEA is, I believe, the sole um, source of estradiol after ovarian failure or after menopause. And you can look at graphs and see um, the level of DHEA being correlated with estradiol receptor activity. In some cells, for example, um, sebaceous cells that produce sebum, DHEA is disproportionately converted to DHT, I believe about half of it. So that has some to do with the potential sebum overproduction of individuals that are on DHEA or that produce a lot of DHEA. And then in other cells, for example, breast cells, um, DHEA can potentially convert to estradiol as well. So there's that balance between um, neoplastic or cancer growth risk and then um, building up bones and maintaining healthy collagen in the skin. Yeah, it just goes to show that there's still a, it's still a frontier to be explored. You know, you hear about, you know, endocrinology. I wouldn't be surprised if 10 or 20 years from now we had intrachronology as a specialty where they're actually looking at you know, tissue samples through some sort of non-invasive way and evaluating, okay, how are these things actually being metabolized and acting intracellularly and in tissues? Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting research to follow. As far as the weight gain that happens in menopause, so on average, I guess if you paint a picture of menopause, you see women who have these hormones that fall off of a cliff, they are unable to sleep, they're having vasomotor symptoms, they gain about 10 pounds, which seems to be in the midsection. Um, are they just eating more or, or what's going on here? 
Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of everything. The metabolism doesn't magically crash, especially if you're not dieting. Now, metabolism will go down as you eat less and also neat or the energy that you're burning, the non-exercise thermogenesis, that will also go down, even if it just happens unconsciously. However, when you have your sleep dysregulated and when you have your uh, fight or flight nervous system, your sympathetic nervous system overactive, and you're not able to have good lifestyle measures, you're not sleeping, um, sleep is, uh, just being able to sleep a good full night of sleep is extremely important because one, you're not eating while you're sleeping, and then two, if you're awake, then your appetite is active. That's another center in the hypothalamus that's important is your anorexigenic center, which is causing you to not feel hungry, and your orexigenic center, which is causing you to feel hungry and angry. And there's medications that inhibit this orexigenic center and their sleep medications. They happen to be weight negative, but their purpose is specifically for poor sleep and they do not work on the GABA system at all. So all of those different things tend to lead to um, body fat accrual and also concurrently if you have less androgens, which many do, you also have less lean body mass, which might be the number one protective thing for preventing weight gain. Yeah, I think you hit on a couple of the big points there. So you have you know, a decrease in lean body mass. It happens in all aging, but especially if you have a, a major drop off of testosterone. Mm -hmm. If you are not sleeping well, you're probably going to make worse food decisions just subconsciously. We see this even in shift work, for example, people yeah. with intact hormone profiles. Um, and then even the change in hormones is going to predispose people to being less active. So it's not mm -hmm. something where people are consciously saying, well, I'm just going to be less active and eat more. It happens at a very subconscious level. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whether that's in somebody's control t to a large degree, no, to a small degree, yes. You know, there's mm -hmm. always things you can do. Um, and then in terms of, you know, other symptoms that are related to menopause. So you talked about the genitourinary syndrome of menopause. So mm -hmm. you see you know, incontinence, urinary tract infections, painful intercourse, and those three things can be fairly easily addressed with yep. a either systemic or even a local vaginal estrogen. So, you know, this is advantageous for a number of reasons. You know, both of you and I working in hospitals in the past, you know, you do tend to see a lot of frequent urinary tract infections yep. in elderly women. So that's just one, you know, aspect of your menopausal health that, that women should consider. Um, if they have an older female family member, you know, I'm, I'm sure that they've experienced UTIs, most women do. Mm -hmm. And if there's something you can do to prevent that that's very low risk, then that's something to be sort of thinking about ahead of time. And we may have touched on this just briefly, but sort of what age should women start thinking about uh, menopausal planning? I, I guess I would use an analogy of like you know, a retirement plan, you don't want to wait till you're retired to plan that out. So mm -hmm. you don't want to wait until you're menopausal to plan that out either. No later than 50, as early as 20. At 20, you would just be getting your baseline labs like any individual, regardless of male or female. But no later than 50, it is not uncommon to see perimenopause or even menopause um, in the early 50s. So I'd say that's the, the latest possible. That being said, it's likely that your progesterone or even androgens have already started to decline even at age 50. 
Yeah. So, I mean, if you happen to go through an earlier menopause, you know, at 45 and you've planned, well, I'm going to talk to my doctor about this at 50, then you're kind of, yep. you know, you're in a, a zone that you don't want to be in. You want to be able to be proactive. So I think, you know, 40 is certainly if you have a, you know, a hysterectomy or if you're going to have hysterectomy and your ovaries taken out as well. Yep. You would want to have those conversations beforehand so that when you are you know, surgically menopausal, you have a plan in place to address that and sustain your quality of life. Any pathology that is related to hormones or hormone optimization or a suboptimal hormone profile, a conversation regarding uh, your baseline hormones, whether it's in the ovulatory phase, luteal phase, or follicular phase, uh, you should chat with a healthcare provider about that at that time. I would venture to say the far majority of women have either subfertility or PCOS or endometriosis or adenomyosis or menorrhagia, excess bleeding or oligomenorrhea, um, less periods than you would expect or heavier, heavier periods than you would expect um, or uh, even acne or if you've been on an oral contraceptive, which I could I consider synthetic HRT, or if you have symptoms of poor sleep, any of these symptoms, which again, the far majority of um, females do experience, then at that time, you can have a conversation about getting your baseline labs and where you feel best. Because of course, in all these pathologies, the goal is to get back to normal as naturally as possible, completely naturally, if possible. And then you should get your baseline labs while you're feeling good and things are regulated that way when a rainy day does come you have that data to utilize yeah i'm a big fan of that as well people getting a, a baseline when you're young and healthy and feeling well um, a lot of times people are getting away with sleeping less and eating more than they should but you're still maintaining your health mm -hmm. um, and then you have an idea of where those you know numbers are and then you can go back and compare those across time when you're getting the blood work yep. Um, so we talked about bone density a little bit. Um, why is bone loss like osteopenia or osteoporosis such a concern and, and why does it happen in postmenopausal women to a greater degree than other populations? It's a large cause of morbidity and mortality. There's a lot of different things that affect your bone mass. For example, resistance training is a great one. Any weight-bearing exercise, even walking or jogging is a great one. The estradiol alpha receptor, so there's two main estradiol receptors, alpha and beta, and then we, in a different podcast we talked about the estrogen-related receptors. There's alpha, beta, and gamma of the ERRs. But estradiol receptor alpha is the main one that, one, closes growth plates. So it's one reason why women with earlier menarche or when they go through puberty earlier, they tend to not grow as tall because they don't have as much time for that growth hormone to work on bones. In earlier ages... Uh, hormones like growth hormone and IGF-1 do help with the buildup of bones and especially collagen and tendons as well. But if you give growth hormone or IGF-1 to adults, then it does not appear to significantly help. But if you withdraw um, estrogen and activity at the estradiol alpha receptor, then you lose bone mineral density. So that's one of the reasons why, if you're thinking about a DEXA scan, usually insurance companies like you to wait five years or more after menopause to start screening DEXA scans. Which to me, it 
makes sense if you're just looking for osteoporosis, but if you're expecting osteopenia, or if you think this individual is a higher risk, even if they don't meet one of the criteria, I wanna see the trend as it's going down. I wanna see before you have osteoporosis, even before you have osteopenia, you're losing bone mineral density because it's hard to reverse and gain a huge amount of bone mineral density back. It is possible, but it's difficult. However, it is quite easy to maintain bone mineral density if you're optimizing your estrogen or androgen. And of course, thinking about things like vitamin D, parathyroid hormone, calcium at the same time. Yeah, so when things like loss of bone density occur and you're at osteoporosis, a lot of times that may be your first DEXA that these women have ever had. And well, now they find out they have osteoporosis and I'm sure almost all of them would want to know that sooner yes. or know the baseline. So we can do this a bit more selectively in populations where if you have someone who is a, you know, low BMI, chronic overexerciser or individuals with, you know, malabsorptive disorders yeah. or have been on corticosteroids in the past. There's a the proton pump inhibitors. Dozens a whole of, host of different different risk factors. And you can screen those populations earlier. And, and I would argue, I think we made, made a uh, sort of set point of, you know, around 40 would not be a bad time for most women to go ahead and check their bone density and see, you know, where are you at at 40? And then, you know, what are we expecting as you go into your 50s, 60s, and so forth? At 40, you're thinking about your bone density and your body composition in general. You're also thinking about colon cancer screening, and you're thinking about breast cancer screening, if not before. That would be the latest time when you would address those things. Yeah, and then you mentioned breast cancer there, and this is something that I have, I would say, probably two-thirds of women ask me about is, you know, well, don't hormones cause breast cancer? So. I think addressing that a little bit could be helpful for people. And um, this data has sort of come out of the uh, Women's Health Initiative from mm -hmm. like nearly two decades ago at this point, but that sort of stigma is still attached to hormone mm -hmm. replacement therapy. Breast cancer and hormones is approached kind of similarly. It's somewhat analogous to prostate cancer and hormones. So if you have, uh, and there's also different types of estrogen, specific types of estrogen can be uh, more inflammatory um, even oncologists will say, you know, we don't know exactly, other than bad luck, we don't know exactly what might cause or not cause any sort of cancer. But we certainly know that prostate cancers are grown by androgens. And we also know that depending on the estradiol receptor, alpha tends to grow tumors and beta not necessarily. If there's a breast cancer that is ER positive, which is estrogen receptor positive, and it's responsive to estrogen. So that is certainly growing that cancer, but it's hard to say if estrogen caused it. Often you find higher estradiol receptor, or sorry, estradiol levels in individuals that have obesity or diabetes. We know that insulin resistance, whether it's the action of insulin directly as in a growth mechanism causing overgrowth and less cell checkpoints, or whether it's a mechanism of IGF-1, which is kind of a combination of your insulin and growth hormone, again, causing cell overgrowth and less checkpoints, perhaps those mechanisms are more causatory, and these individuals also happen to have higher body fats and higher aromatase levels, and thus higher estradiol receptor levels as well. That's probably a better way to think about it, is that the lack of cell checkpoints and the cells that have kind of changed into zombie cells, your immune system just doesn't have enough time to recognize them and destroy them. 
That's one reason why many of the most promising cancer therapies are immunotherapies. Yeah, and I think you mentioned it is with the IGF-1 and elevated insulin signaling, those are some confounding variables because they come in a cluster with the elevated BMI, for example. Mm -hmm. You have elevated estradiol, so it's not necessarily, aha, we can say that the estradiol is the cause here because it may be these other variables. Mm -hmm. And the take-home point, I think, is uh, regardless of whether you're on HRT or not, you know, getting your regular screening for breast cancer, um, it, it's important and probably just as important, if not more so, if you are on a hormone replacement mm -hmm. protocol because you are you know, feeding in more estrogen or estradiol specifically than would otherwise be there. Mm -hmm. Another interesting point with breast cancer is you think of growth of glandular breast tissue as a balance between estrogens and androgens. And a lot of that has to do with the action of aromatase. And some of it just has to do with the action of your androgen receptor gene as well. For example, in men that have um, low testosterone and high estrogen, you can see growth of glandular breast tissue. Same thing in women. If you have someone that has even higher estrogen, whether a male or a female, but much, much higher androgens, that glandular breast tissue is not going to have as much hypertrophy because the androgen receptor activity itself, even if you take a synthetic androgen, synthetic androgens used to be treatments for breast cancers because they were, um, they would halt the hypertrophy from the action of estrogen, even those synthetic androgens might be protective. So it's just one more reason why, um, whether you're male or female, but especially as a female for breast cancer risk, you want to have a normal ratio of testosterone to estrogen, which is often four times as much testosterone as estrogen milligram per milligram. Yeah, and that, that's something that I don't think is widely known is just how much more testosterone every human being has in their body compared to estradiol, even in women. So I think that's a great overview of you know, the breast cancer and some of those risks there associated with HRT that may not necessarily be caused by the HRT. So I think we dove a bit deeper into that. Um, what about the loss of libido? Because you know, potentially that ties into the genitourinary syndrome, um, but libido is also correlated with testosterone. And mm -hmm. uh, the phenomenon that's widely seen is, you know, upwards of three quarters of women when go through menopause have some sort of worsening or decreased libido. Mm -hmm. Before menopause, in most women, and this is highly, highly variable, about two-thirds of your testosterone is produced via the adrenals because the adrenals make DHEA and it converts to testosterone in this steroidogenesis cascade. And about one-third is made in the ovary via theca cells that precipitously stops during menopause. However, in some women, three-quarters of the testosterone is made in the theca cells. In some, one-tenth of the testosterone is made in the theca cells. So it's extremely highly variable. And that's another reason why it's good to test both the DHEA sulfate and use an accurate assay to test total and free testosterone in women. But the um, ratio of um, your testosterone before and after, and it's not an exact science. So it's, it's not like, well, we can bring your testosterone to this level and you'll have a normal libido. Plus libido in general is um, far more complicated than just a hormone profile. But it's a good place to start to where if you're having genitourinary urinary syndrome or an abnormal libido, especially compared to your baseline, 
then hopefully comparing your testosterone level now to a baseline level. But even if you don't have a baseline level, at least trying to get into a, a level that is not suboptimal. Yeah, and I think that testosterone is something that you know should be part of that planning conversation. Like if you have a provider who is, says, oh yeah, we can handle your menopause, we'll do HRT, okay, you know, is testosterone part of that or is testosterone not part of that? Is mm -hmm. testosterone automatically part of that? Because it shouldn't always be, it depends on the individual. Yes. Um, and testosterone is not necessarily just restricted to postmenopausal women. Um, perimenopausal or even some premenopausal women will have very low levels of testosterone for mm -hmm. a number of different reasons. And there is some data out there supporting the use of it um, for increasing libido specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, but then in postmenopausal women, there's also the benefits of improving bone density. So mm -hmm. you can sort of build your case for or against testosterone around, well, are there any issues with libido? Are there any issues with bone density? you know, the lean body mass, you know, if, if someone is really trying to put on bone density and improve their strength and balance, those sorts of things, then testosterone would seem to be beneficial in all of those metrics. And then, you know, the libido also would tend to come along with that, not 100% of the cases. Another two things that should be added to the discussion is what is this female's baseline level of SHBG? So do you expect a really, really high free testosterone, even with a low dose? and thus a higher chance of side effects from the testosterone. And perhaps even what is this individual's androgen receptor sensitivity? Um, so those two things can also make a difference um, because you certainly don't want to, if you treat every female with testosterone and you have a reference range, let's say 100 to 200, and you say this is the perfect reference range for all women, regardless of their androgen receptor sensitivity, their androgen receptor density, or their SHBG, and you're just going by that total testosterone, then you're gonna have a huge portion have side effects. And unfortunately, when that happens, often they swear off taking any androgen because they think, well, that's the male hormone and that didn't work for me. Whereas it was just the level of their androgen receptor gene, their transcription was too high um, because a cookie cutter regimen like that doesn't work for anyone. And um, often when you start a female on testosterone, you want to use an administration method that is easily reversible. Yeah, I, I think that's important because um, you, you referenced at the very beginning that there is a overwhelming demand for menopausal care mm -hmm. and the supply is you know not necessarily integrated into your traditional medical system. Mm -hmm. So you'll see women who are you know seeking these things outside of the traditional medical model and paying you know thousands of dollars per year for, we'll just use pellet implants as an example there. Yep. And, you know, while women certainly do experience benefit from those things or, you know, they wouldn't be seeking them out, mm -hmm. there are variable outcomes because yes. they're typically a, a template. And when you have variation in people and you use a, a template, you're going to see variable outcomes. I mean, yeah. the same could be said for most therapies that you give hundred people the same exact dose of a medication and it's going to affect them in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, another point it, that we can talk about with menopause is often combined oral contraceptives are used as a carryover where someone is having symptoms but they're not quite menopausal, they're perimenopausal, and you use them as a bridge to HRT, which 
kind of makes sense and it kind of doesn't make sense. I am obviously not completely against synthetic estrogens and synthetic progestins, but if this individual is having some uh, genitourinary syndrome of menopause or changes in libido or function as well, then I think, well, why not think about a bioidentical androgen or even a synthetic androgen? How is a synthetic estrogen, a synthetic progesterone? If you're on these molecules, yes, they're well studied, but a lot of bioidentical androgens and even synthetic androgens are quite well studied as well. Perhaps not recent studies, but there's many of them that are very well studied, including actually especially so in women, especially women that have had breast cancer that have had a lot of activity at the estrogen receptor as well. Um, these are things that for the right individuals should certainly be considered because if you're on something like an oral contraceptive and you're perimenopausal or you're just barely menopausal, um, or perhaps you didn't meet the criteria for FSH or LH or you've had a period recently that was kind of like a one-off or a random one, you're, you have this really high SHBG and you have an extremely low free testosterone and some of your symptoms are addressed, but many of them are worse. Yeah, I think the, the perimenopausal window is very interesting because it could be one month for some women and then they're in menopause. Mm -hmm. And for some women, they can have these fluctuations for two or three years. And I, I think what happens is, well, we just wait until they meet the criteria. When I say we, I'm talking about the traditional yeah. medical model. Um, when in actuality, I think, you know, Let's say I was going to design an optimal perimenopausal treatment for a woman that had, does have a lot of these fluctuations. Yeah. They have hot flashes one month, they don't the next. You can suppress the ovarian function. Um, you could do that with just a, a synthetic progesterone or yeah. a progestin. Uh, but then you are going to have decreased estrogen signaling, which is not ideal for holding on to bone mineral density and addressing mm -hmm. the genital urinary symptoms. Um, and it's not going to address lean body mass either. Yeah. While I'm not, you know, opposed to synthetic estrogens, I think if you are suppressing the ovaries with a synthetic progestin, you could add a bioidentical estradiol to that. You could add a bioidentical testosterone to that. And that would sort of be the ideal regimen in my mm -hmm. mind. Yep. Um, is that done frequently in practice? You know, probably not, just because there's multiple moving parts and you have to make sure that your patient is gonna be able to understand why things are being done and are yeah. they gonna be able to do three different things instead of one thing. It's an individualized approach. So if you have a, a woman who really wants to know what is 100% the most optimal and natural and best way to address this, then maybe you have a little bit more of a complex regimen. Whereas if you have a woman that says, I just wanna you know, take one pill and have this stabilized and then we'll address menopause when yeah. we get there, then you could be on the end of that where you have a synthetic estrogen mm -hmm. and a synthetic progestin. Yeah. Um, and there's no products yet that have a synthetic estrogen, synthetic progestin, and synthetic androgen in them. Mm -hmm. So I think that would be an interesting frontier for drug development given how common osteoporosis and fractures are. Yeah, that would be extremely interesting, especially during the perimenopausal time where you're, a lot of your risks are lower but you're really stockpiling. It, it's true preventative medicine to avoid things like that. Um, and even as healthcare providers that concentrate on health optimization, a lot of health optimization is actually just disguised true preventative medicine. You do get an increase in quality of life and an increase in health span, but the lion's share of the benefit comes in preventing osteoporosis. 
preventing diabetes, preventing insulin resistance, preventing a decrease in muscle mass or sarcopenia, even preventing osteopenia. So a lot of those preventative measures, that's where you get 90% of the benefit. Yeah, I agree. And it, it brings us back to that sort of analogy we used earlier, your you know, savings for retirement, or you're, you're building up for that transition later in life when things start to go the other direction. Yeah. So you're building up your health because the more optimized you are and the more things you prevent, just like making smart financial decisions, the more you know health hardships or financial hardships you can endure in mm -hmm. retirement or postmenopausally or in your you know later decades of your life. So you know it really is preventative and optimization. It's a it's a bundled deal. You couldn't really do one without the other. Yep, um, they are synonymous, and you do both at the same time. Okay. Well, I think this is some really good information for people. A lot of women have asked specifically, you know, you know talk more about female hormones. And, mm -hmm. you know, we do have a, a very large, I think more of our patient population yeah. is female than male. So this. putting this information out there, I think will be valuable for a lot of people, um, whether they're our patients or just people that are watching to educate themselves. And I think we brought up a couple of really good points. So I guess to restate some of those for take home points, you know, don't wait until you're menopausal to have a discussion about menopause. Yep. Um, being aware of some of these symptoms and changes that are normal and expected, but then knowing that you can do things to treat those. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the take-home points you thought were important from the discussion? Female hormones are pretty much the exact same as male hormones, and they are in very similar ratios as well. So testosterone is very important for women, and estrogens are very important for men. So when you have a discussion, it's actually a, a quite similar discussion, especially when you're thinking about um, the physiology, even at the uh, cellular level in various tissues. A lot of it comes down to how much activity you have at the estradiol alpha receptor, how much activity you have at the estradiol beta receptor, and how much activity you have at the androgen receptor. So everything becomes so complicated, but if you're thinking about how those receptors are functioning in each organ tissue, then it can become more simple. So uh, even if we, uh, you know, even if for our male listeners, if they listen to what we discussed, almost all of it would be the same, except when you're talking about breast tissue. Of course, men do have breast tissue and some men do get breast cancer, et cetera, et cetera. Thinking about prostate tissue instead, it could be widely applicable. Yeah, I think it's important, regardless of if you're a, a male or female, that you understand to some degree what goes on in menopause and you know, some of those factors there that people, everyone should be thinking about. Mm -hmm. So this was a fun one. All right. Thanks for listening. And if you have any questions or comments, please do leave those in the comments section, mm -hmm. whether that's on an Instagram reel or on our YouTube channel, because we do look at those and we try to answer as many of those things as we can. Thank you for tuning in. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.